Black Cats Run podcast. Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Observation, sometimes better than just speculation. A lot of the things we think we know about how to prepare ourselves, a lot of the things we think we can interpret about the preparation of others is based on these invented perceptions, these constructs of thought that haven't really been validated except through the process of recitation by others. Observation is a different approach. Can we see things a little bit more clearly, a little bit more differently when we do that? Today's episode, The Bee's Knees, we introduce a new concept, entropic demand, try to understand what could this help us do in terms of the process of observation and reaching conclusions about how to see the most benefits from preparation. Integrity is a word that is often, I think, most closely associated with moral characteristics. But another way to think about integrity is to just think about the concept of a internal structural consistency to things. And that could apply to your view or your mentality, but also by extension, your approach. And approaching things with this concept of integrity this concept of consistency is really, I think, a pathway to try to make better sense of what's going on when we're doing training. One of my conceits is I think the majority of people are very performative in the way that they engage in their practice to get better at anything. And obviously on Black Cats Run, we are most interested in training and preparation for endurance sports. But I think one of the things we've also seen through our episodes to this point, and no doubt we'll continue to see, is that there's a lot of overlap, that the kinds of practices that allow us to prove, improve at what we're doing apply across. And there's a consistency, there's an integrity to the process of improvement. There's also an integrity, or there needs to be an integrity, to the process of evaluation, the process of observation. And I think learning to better look at what we're seeing and reach conclusions from what we see versus reaching conclusions and then looking to see those conclusions, right? Those are very different processes. The first is a process with integrity. Uh, The second is a process of a kind of like intellectual laziness, although it can feel Um, not very lazy at all, because when you're trying to validate or assert or defend or define or prove a concept that is actually not supported by evidence, it can, as you imagine, become very fatiguing to try to do that. So the reality is that we're looking at a process of thinking here that is both more simple and more complex, depending on your approach. And it may at first be more complex or feel more complex because you're trying something new. It's like, but we all know that things that feel complex at first will become more simple as we give ourselves the opportunity to practice applying them, right? And as we develop that new sense of integrity, 
we develop that sense of ease and then we develop that sense of proficiency, right? Because effective practice is practice that happens within our threshold of proficiency. And one of the things we need to be proficient at is how we think. So an observation, right, versus um, a sort of pre-constructed conclusion, what would that look like? So when people exercise, um, I think that there is a narrative around this stuff in terms of you know the stories that we're supposed to tell. And I think that a lot of us uh, want to be perceived as fitting that narrative. So that, you know, heroic archetype archetype of doing the awesome workouts and, you know, that really, I feel the benefit. A lot of us say we feel benefit from things when we don't. Maybe we've never actually felt benefit from any particular kind of training we've done. So we've done, so we don't actually even know what that really feels like anyway. So we just sort of hear people say, well, when other people do this, they say these things. So those are the things to say. So I'm going to emulate that. And that's a pretty common pattern of human behavior in general, I would say. I think we also see that there's a reality outside of the way that people are performative or present this stuff um, where people aren't actually executing the things that they claim they're executing. That I think that if you looked at some actual data and you really aggregated together, maybe something like via, you know, an application like Strava, right, which successfully becomes an archive for so many different people trying to do different kinds of training things. I think you're going to see that all of these, you know, high performance workouts and training strategies, there's a pretty high rate of failure from session to session to session. And for me as a, as a you know, person who is an athlete and then that's in the capacity of being a coach or, or at least talking to people and collaborating with people about training ideas, you know, that's a process that has a lack of integrity because there's no internal consistency to training like that. And, you know, at the same time, though, there are people who do seem to do this. So how can we have something be at once successful and and not successful? And then you also have this interesting data illusion where you see the people being successful are the people who are successfully completing all of these workouts and that the people who aren't competing successfully or aren't improving, however you want to describe that outcome, um, are the people who are failing in a sense to complete these workouts. And that causes us to reconfirm our preconceived notion that you have to do these things um, and you have to execute these sessions. And that's the point at which the consistency really happens. What I would suggest is that the point of it is to be consistent, not to do the workouts, but to never exceed the capacity at which you can be consistent. Now, one insight that we've tried to articulate a lot in, across a number of episodes is that concept of lactate threshold. And we've connected that all the way back to successful training paradigms, you know, such as my favorite example um, is Arthur Lydiard and his group of New Zealanders in the 50s and 60s. And the reason, again, why I like that example is because it shows that you can reach this conclusion um, in different contexts. And it suggests, and I think this is very significant, it suggests that this kind of conclusion of you have to train under that aerobic breakpoint, if you will, is something that people have been doing for a long time. It's, this isn't a modern innovation. It's not some new thing. I think sometimes people are leery 
of, you know, oh, I don't want to just get on the bandwagon, which is ironic because I think a lot of us inevitably find ourselves bandwagoning certain ideas, whether it's about our engagement in athletics or whether it's about something else. You know, I don't want to get on that bandwagon. And you see people cop out and make statements like, you know, and this is an amateur, you know, level of, you know, regional athletics. You know, if anybody's better than them, well, they must be a doper, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, some percentage of the population takes performance enhancing drugs. I think that's inevitable. But I think training is probably the most significant performance enhancer that you can do, right? And especially if you look at people and you don't see them doing the things that you think are necessary to be at that high level, right? It, it's kind of, I think a lack of intellectual power if we look at that and we say, well, they must be cheating. They must be taking PEDs or something like that. Some people are, but, you know, if you want to be good, you still need to be able to train, right? You know, the the cheapest anecdotal example is like, you know, if people want to become, you know, bodybuilders. You don't just inject yourself with steroids, right? And, and sit on a couch, right? Um, you still have to induce the stimulus. You still have to induce that epigenetic response that gives your body the incentive to create the adaptation, right? So that's really what we want to be understanding. And things like saying, you know, at the amateur level, you know, well, this person's on the juice and that person's on the juice. I think that also becomes like a cop-out because it's a way for us to not look at what we're doing, you know, and at these amateur levels of racing, there's a lot of really awesome amateur athletes out there. And I think amateur, you know, the true amateur, I think, is oftentimes underappreciated or ignored um, in terms of the sport, sporting landscape and in terms of how awesome it is to be able to do that stuff when you're, when you're totally, you know, not able to benefit from the sort of structures of time and resource and money available to the, you know, contemporary, you know, pro athlete, right? Makes it easier to do training because you have the time to do it. But I think it takes away um, from the potential insights that we could learn when we use these kind of like dismissive, you know, cop-out strategies, you know, by the same token of, of people. I know people who will say that basically, you know, if they're better than anybody, it's because, well, they know how to train better than them. But if anybody's superior to them, they say, well, it's because they're more talented, right? And we try to place ourselves in this weird place in which like, you know, well, we need to feel legitimate by, you know, demeaning, you know, the the capacity of others, right? So this idea of, well, I know how to train the best. And, you know, if other people aren't, you know, beating me, it's because they're not as smart as me. And if people are beating me, well, it's definitely because they're not as smart as me. They're just you know, more talented than me. And, and that dogmatic need to protect the ego and those kinds of things aggregate together to create like a pretty significant veil of ignorance. And, and that's a pretty like integrity-free way to think about this stuff. And that circles back to that concept of observation, right? We're not making observations here, right? We're just reinforcing beliefs that we feel we need to equip ourselves with or cling to so that we can feel good about who we are as a person, I guess. Um, and I think different people can maybe relate to it. I'm sure we all do this uh, in certain capacities and in certain ways. And I'm sure oftentimes we're oblivious, really. We don't necessarily stop and really think uh, that much about what we're doing when we sort of construct those kinds of systems of logic and reasoning. 
So if we shift though more towards observation, right, what could we start to see instead? Well, I think what we can start to see is an accumulation of integrity systems, okay, things that actually, you know, drive consistency. So if the goal of training is to improve at whatever you're practicing, and then if it is also true, which I think it is, that consistency is the most important, then what we should be doing is we should be designing our training based around what works consistently, okay? Not designing our training around what are the really awesome workouts, because if we can't do those consistently, that's not going to work, right? They don't benefit from writing down special cool workouts on a piece of paper, on, an ex- on a spreadsheet, whatever, on training peaks, and then going out and trying to execute that. And that's tough because people, you know, at levels of organized sport, whether those are, you know, professional organizations, national organizations, you know, they sort of unconditionally believe in this stuff. Because the reality is, is, you know, being in a position of authority is usually based on, you know, athletics is based on how cool your, you know, your race resume is, not based on, you know, how, quote unquote, um, intelligent or analytical or whatever, right? You might, however you want to think about that, right? Your ability to see patterns and, and do that stuff is usually not what's being celebrated. And there's, you know, I'm sure there's positives and negatives to that, but that's the reality of the landscape. And people just look at these data tools and they just say, well, it's a data tool and it, it's sort of feeding this thing out. So that must be unconditionally true. So then, oh, well, if you put these inputs in, the model will say, this is what you should do and et cetera, et cetera. And whether that's training peaks or, or trainer road, then, you know, people, it's, it's not, the, the equation doesn't validate it. Okay, because this is not Newtonian level deductions or, you know, Albert Einstein and, you know, theoretical physicists didn't sit around and try to deduce the fundamental equations of training. You know, these are just sort of models that people have generically uh, created to just sort of validate what they have, you know, seen as the socially constructed model of training, right? So then the, you have a graph Uh, like the performance management chart on training peaks, um, you have a graph which ultimately is mostly grounded in, you know, the belief. It's a graph of belief. The belief that, you know, these workouts and these patterns lead to these outcomes. But people look at that graph as if this graph is actually telling them something about what's going on in their body. It's just like, whoop, right? And, And we're sort of, the marketplace of sports is taking advantage of people's, you know, willingness to believe things. Um, you know, there's a, it's a behavioral issue. Um, it's not that this data is actually validating things. So those aren't, I don't think the right methods of observation. And as a consequence, you know, you get to this point where it's hard to disprove it because you can't execute the workouts. And so then you really basically have days where you're not really training effectively. And we've talked on the podcast of like, what's the opportunity cost of doing a specific workout versus you know, progression versus just going out and doing baseline aerobic training. And unless you're really highly responsive to the specific workout progression, then one form of being highly responsive, I would suggest, is the ability to actually consistently execute the workouts. Because if you can't execute each session, then I would argue you're not responding well 
to the training because the whole model of the training is that this athlete will be able to you know adapt across this cycle or this time period and move through all of these workouts right most people aren't able to do that and therefore right they're definitely going to be better off going out and just running easy for 80 minutes or 90 minutes but that's not considered to be a viable alternative so if you're just going out there and you're not able to be consistent you're not going to improve it's not cuz you're not executing the workouts per se it's because you're not being consistent so we want to prioritize consistency and it's not hard to see if we're being consistent. You don't need, you know, complicated, and I don't mean complicated in, in a scornful way. I just mean rel- it's relatively more complicated uh, to create systems around TSS and intensity factor and fractional utilization of this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, I think some concepts um, like lactate threshold can feel complex, but it's really not. It's just saying, oh, Here's this point. You can actually learn pretty quickly how to feel it by perception, um, you know, because once you shift your mindset, it becomes very obvious. And when you train, you should basically always be below that, except on special occasions. And on those occasions, you then, you know, need to learn maybe through a little bit of experience, how much time can I spend in a session working over that point based on how much fatigue I'll get. And is it worth racking up that muscular fatigue because then I won't be able to like train very well the next few days because my muscles will be so trashed that I won't be able to generate enough force to really be very, to be more than, you know, very, very low level aerobic activity. I don't think that that's uh, really that complicated, but you know, it's like tying your shoes, right? You have to learn it and, and then it becomes simpler. And that's what makes the consistency possible. The other dynamic of this consistency then that we're talking about, you know, is really how do we actually respond to training? And there's a lot of thought put into how do we plan the training? Like how hard do we need to go? Um, And instead of saying, well, how hard do we need to not go in order to be consistent? And I think, you know, sometimes these seemingly subtle differences are actually profoundly impactful if we apply them in the correct way. So here's an example. Bees. So bees have kind of an interesting method of communication. Um, Essentially, they can go out, find a source of pollen, and return to the hive and perform this uh, kind of elaborate dance where they're circling and waggling and like it's based on um, the angle of the sun and they can also and so they can communicate the direction to a food source to other bees in the hive and uh, the guy who researched this uh, won the nobel prize for doing this which you know if you look into bee communication it's you know kind of interesting you can find stuff on youtube that will show you what i'm talking about but the other aspect of this is they're able to communicate um, how far this is. So they can communicate the direction. And then the bees identify this basically based on this relative angle to the position of the sun against the horizon. And then they also need to know how far to fly in that direction. And what is significant, most significant and interesting for our connection is that the observation, the observation here made 
is essentially that bees measure distance um, by the energy it takes them. Because if there's a headwind, right, if you're a bee, you know, you're going to be affected quite a bit energy-wise um, by wind because bees don't, their FTP is, you know, sort of like not that great. VO2 max of a bee is, is not that great. Um, so, of course, watch that be wrong. Bees have like, might have the most incredible uh, VO2 max. But, you know, the bee, right, certainly is not going to produce a lot of watts. So, energy, right, you're really limited by energy and, and based on the weather conditions, right? You know, that if you uh, run into a significant headwind, certainly for cycle, if you ride a bike, right, if you cycle, you know about the impact of wind direction quite well. So you can imagine, right, for bees, this is significant. Um, it's going to change how fast they go, but they're really measuring this distance by the energy it takes them. So it could be two kilometers, let's just say. And depending on the weather, if there's a tailwind or a headwind or no wind, the bee is going to indicate that distance being, quotes, quotes, longer or, quotes, quotes, shorter. Now, when we do training, uh, evaluation, goal setting, workout planning, uh, we measure training predominantly by trying to look at empirical measurements, you know, things like velocity, um, you know, things like, you know, watts. And that might be a good way to measure performance if we really want to compare uh, A to B. But it's probably not actually a good way to measure training effect or training design. And I think herein, maybe we see one of the key issues when we look at how do we develop training as a system of integrity versus a system of, you know, self-discipline. And I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? Because I don't really feel that there's a lot of conversation about this in the landscape of athletics, um, contemporary um, or really in the past. And I think that there's a default to sort of saying here, well, maybe, well, yeah, but like that's recovery. But I think the reality is if people are really more reflective about that process of recovery, if that's even the right term, I, I don't really like the word recovery because I think it's sort of you know misleading um, and it suggests these very like definite predictable timelines. And at least because that's what has come to be associated with it is just as you can pre-plan the workout, you can then also pre-plan the recovery. And then, you know, as an extension of that, then you can plan whole training cycles and periodize out everything and know exactly what to do. And it looks really nice and cool and intelligent on paper. And it looks, in, you know, empirical, right? It lends itself to the scientific process. And I think we need that empirical data if we want to do study and reach conclusions. But it's also, I think, why uh, sports science has really struggled to just totally take over, um, you know, athletics and why, you know, you can still see athletics as having this well as more of an art than a science. And I, I think the reality is it is a science because it's engaging tangible physiological systems. It's just that the observations that are being made are incorrect. And there's, you know, a huge problem of, of people wanting to confirm, you know, their their belief about how training should work, right? People want to confirm, for example, you know, specific workouts, because if you need to do elaborate workouts that only the guru has insight into, then that really confirms a certain commercialized model of sport. 
Um, and if it turns out that, well, basically you just need to teach somebody, you know, that lactate threshold concept and that teaching them that is like, you know, tying shoes. And it's the whole thing, the difference between give a man a fish versus teaching a person to fish, right? You know, we want to cultivate our sports environment wants to cultivate that dependency, um, you know, versus because if we, if we do the independence idea of like we want people to be autonomous and, and self-directed and et cetera, et cetera, that doesn't tend to work with what we want. So how do we, you know, try to move in a different direction here? Here's a concept, entropic demand. So if the bees are basically measuring their distance by the energy, I would consider that to be entropic demand. And that might be a phrase that I'm sort of coining here um, for myself. So let me explain what I mean by this. You know, the law of entropy, right? Complex things break down over time if they're not, you know, continually invested with energy. Um, and we see this is true on, you know, social scales as well as, uh, you know, more, you know, sort of definitive natural scales, but things you know, break down over time, right? If you don't continue to exercise, you lose fitness, use it or lose it, right? Societies tend to break down and become more corrupted um, if people don't continue to invest in the integrity of their social structures. That's just what we what we see. And I think you take this concept and, and for the bees are expen- essentially experiencing a kind of entropic demand. Right. Where instead of saying that this is how many miles or this is how many minutes or this is how many watts. Right. What if we say, well, we measure the training based on how tired we get in the sense, but a little bit more than that, I think, because being tired is just sort of this recovery idea. And then it's like you can apply this sort of, you know, I don't this is not true, but people believe predominantly that you can just apply some sort of ambiguous intervention and that you'll then get the result. Um, that you want, and it doesn't in practice, and you know evidence doesn't support that stuff. But but people believe that there should be this predictable sort of recovery thing, and, and you know again a market space emerges. It primes people to consume things regardless of whether or not they actually make sense. So what I would propose in this context of entropic demand is that we consider the concept of say, well, what is the inevitable demand of the work? because all work inevitably creates some sort of demand and that there's an entropic effect that occurs as a result of the work done. So if you go out and you run five miles, right, you're going to engender a certain kind of like epigenetic response and there's a process that will go through. And is the five-mile run equivalent for all people, right? So for the bees, right, two kilometers isn't two kilometers, right? We're not, they're not measuring in terms of distance. They're measuring in terms of energy. Now, part of that is bees probably don't have the capacity, right, to, to measure in terms of distance. But that's arguably a good thing, right? A lot of times we can see and observe and create ideas as humans that are way beyond what we see other living things do. And we just assume that because it's more complex or it's different, or it's unique to us, that, well, that must be superior. But that's not necessarily the case at all. So, again, five-mile run. You know, is that the same thing for any two, two people? And I think 
you know, five miles is empirically five miles. So in that sense, you could say, yeah, it's the same. But at the same time, I think you would say no, right? Um, you know, the easiest way to do that is, well, different people will do five miles at different uh, speeds, right? But then you could say that, well, there's a fractional utilization. And so this person might be going slower, but they're not working as hard because they're not going at a higher percentage of VO2 max, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so what if you have two people going at the same speed, right? They finish in the same time. Is that equivalent? Well, I would say no, because I think different athletes are going to experience different levels of entropic demand. So I think two athletes can achieve the same velocity and the same measure of, say, their you know, power-to-weight production as a fractional utilization of X benchmark, whether that's VO2 max, whether that's their PR in the mile, whether that's their uh, lactate threshold, right? You can use, again, some sort of empirical, comparable, you know, data point. And I think even if you have equivalency in all those things, is five miles going to be the same? If you have two athletes who can run 415 in the mile, and then they both go out and they run uh, an 8K road race, and they both run, I don't know, 2450, um, you know, and they're right shoulder to shoulder the whole way. Did they, and they both have the same lactate threshold, you know, maybe their lactate threshold is 530 pace, you know, is that really the same thing, right? Or you could say with cyclists, you know, they have the same FTP, you know, and then they go out and they both do, a 90 minute time trial and they both ride the same number of watts is that the same effort and i think no i think that diff- any athletes are going to experience different levels of entropic demand and i think that entropic demand is going to impede our ability to be consistent and if we take this observed example in nature of bees measuring distance by the energy it takes them or what i'm saying really we could articulate as entropic demand, is that a better insight into how we should train? So let's say, let's make more of a tangible comparison. You could probably apply this concept on paper on your own, but I'll give you the example that I came up with. And you, this is any example with, you can take out a calculator and a pencil and you can fit and you can do this in any different context, right? Because the point is to compare two objectively, empirically identical performances, but then try to say, well, is that actually the same level of intensity? So let's say my work rate, VO2 max, is 500 watts and I'm 86 kilograms. And let's say another athlete, you know, this athlete's name is now Joe. Let's say Joe has a VO2 max of 360 watts. Okay, Um, you know, are these athletes experiencing the same work here if they have both have the same um, power to weight at those watts, right? So for me, in this example, um, you might be thinking, wow, 500 watts and 360 watts, that's a big difference. And I think that's the right reaction to have here. But if I am 86 kilograms and if Joe is 61.9 or 62 kilograms, actually, 
according to these empirical perspectives of of training, those are the same, right? So if it was you were on training peaks or something like that, um, then these would be considered equivalent, that 500 watts and 360 watts are the same. And I think we know that that can't be true um, because if you're looking at powering electrical appliances or light bulbs, right, you know, 500 watts and 360 watts are not going to get you the same output, okay? But in athletics, we're equivocating these things. We're not equivocating, but we're, we're saying these things are equivalent to one another, right? We're saying these are exactly the same, even though they're, I would say, actually exactly not the same. So we ask the question then, thinking about this entropic demand concept, are these athletes experiencing the same work? So objectively, we say yes. Okay, that's not what should be said, but that's what we do. Objectively, we're basically saying that 360 watts and 500 watts are the same. And that's from that perspective of, well, we want to take empirical measurements of performance because in this model, you're suggesting that, well, these athletes are going to you know, do better or worse. And I've had discussions um, with friends over the years who are you know, you know, t- on the taller side, you know, and, and as a consequence of that, you know, don't weigh 135 pounds um, as runners or cyclists. And there's this you know, angst of, well, like, I can't be good because... I'm just too big and nothing will over overcome that for me. And, you know, I acknowledge that I've been, you know, more or less unsuccessful in trying to suggest that they see this differently. But my suggestion to them has been, well, like, you're not going to act. It's not, it doesn't, it's not this like thing where everybody starts at the bottom of the mountain and then we all go up at the same speed. You know, there's a reason why in, in these, stage races you have these teams that will go to the front and set these high tempos because they want to keep the pace up because essentially whether you know they might not articulate it in this way but essentially what they're doing is they're trying to make the you know smaller riders more fatigued because if you again if you have the example of the 86 kilogram guy you know and you are riding in the peloton and you're pushing the tempo up maybe you're riding you know, 250 watts or something. Well, that's going to be experienced very differently now by the 86 kilogram athlete versus the 62 kilogram athlete. You know, one of those athletes is going to be still feel very comfortable. The other athlete is now working at a much higher level of energy. And over the course of a week or a three week race, you know, that's going to have cumulative effect. And that's why you might see people like Nairo Quintana, you know, was essentially unable to compete with Chris Froome because, and then you also see, right, who's the superior time trialist. And I think that's further evidence of this concept of like, you know, your level of fatigue is going to be different. And I don't mean to imply, by the way, that the smaller athlete um, is necessarily at a, a disadvantage. I think that either athlete can be at a disadvantage depending on the concept, because it depends on how you create that entropic demand. You know, the smaller athlete is going to win the, shorter um stage race or is going to win the one day race um you know with the big climbs uh maybe but over the longer term are they going to still have that advantage you know or you know you also see that the you know horses for courses right different body types um seem to be better at different events right and i think there's some insight into that okay but then it's not just enough to look at the performance, right? We also have to think about 
what about how do different body types respond to training? Because in practice, we should say no. We should say that these two athletes are not equivalent, even though across all this empirical data, what they're doing is the same. So what if we think about this in terms of what's the subsequent fatigue, right? Instead of trying to calculate training stress or training points or training load based off of the, well, you're using X percentage of, you know, this objective standard and you've done, you did 90% of lactate threshold. So that's a 90% workout. Oh, wow. 90%. You know what? Well, that's not going to be the same thing for the same people. Okay. Um, that's not, I think, going to reflect what the actual entropic um, demand is or really like what's the entropic decay, right? You, you apply the demand is the entropic demand. And then the sort of what you actually, the observable outcome of that is like that decay from that, right? Um, and since entropy means that a complex system, you know, breaks down, you know, and the more complex the system is, the more likely it is to break down unless it has more energy put into it. Um, I think that also means that a larger system is a more complex system and larger objects consume more energy. You know, think about brakes, for example. Brakes convert kinetic energy into, you know, basically dissipating that energy in, through heat, right? And this kind of Connecticut, Connecticut, welcome to Connecticut. This kind of kinetic output of work is greater for larger units, okay, larger bodies. And the greater the kinetic output, I would say the greater the entropic demand. So the bigger athlete, you know, is going to experience more entropic demand, okay? So if you have a, a given day of racing, I'd say, you know, the bigger athlete, you know, could have an advantage because they will save energy outside of the climbs. And so then, you know, the strategy of the race, right, well, they might get to the climb and they might not have the optimal, you know, power to weight ratio according to all their testing and whatever, but they might st still keep up on the climb or outdo people on the climb because, you know, they can do all of this power um, and they can, you know, push themselves, you know, to that kind of like, you know, higher level of exertion, but then their entropic demand of that is going to be going to be really high. Um, you know, and this concept of entropic, you know, demand and, and that our systems require more energy, um, I think is like evidence even through just like stopping power on your brakes. So for me, one of the things that's been interesting to observe is as my body you know, has changed over the last 10 years. Um, I don't weigh 143 pounds anymore. Like right now, I'm probably 188 pounds. But over the last 10 years or so of that change, um, like I found that, you know, braking on the bike feels very different. And whereas when I was 140 pounds, I didn't think anything of it. You know, now I'm much more mindful if I'm going down a steep hill of like, okay, where's my center of gravity, you know, and, and what's my stopping time going to be when I hit the brakes? And it doesn't matter if it's disc brakes or carbon rim brakes, it, it, either system of braking, right? I noticed that it's, it's different. Um, and that when I was much lighter, I didn't really think about this. It felt like I could just stop on a dime. And maybe the difference in reality isn't as big um, as I perceive it to me, but it's enough that it's, it's very much like 
changes how I think about riding the bike in order to, you know, to be, to be safe. Um, and like in that same way, I think that bigger athletes experiences are going to experience a greater impact from what they're trying to do in training. Now, you know, I think trauma is kind of a, a bad word in some sense to use here because it has a really negative connotation. Um, and I'm not trying to use it in that particularly negative sense. I just mean to use it in the like adversity sense, right? Where, you know, for the bigger athlete, let's use an example of a workout. Let's say both athletes do five times a mile, okay? Or you could do five times five minutes on the bike. And let's say they both work at that same, you know, fractional um, utilization, right? And maybe that's equivalent pace or the same fractional utilization, right? Equivalent watts. So if they're, you know, um, you know, right? One athlete is doing them at doing 500 watts and the other athlete is doing 360 watts, okay? Well, you're going to see, you know, maybe both athletes did the same workout, but it's not the same workout. The athlete did 500 watts, I would suggest, is more likely to experience a greater level of entropic demand and subsequent entropic decay. So what are the kind of kinetics of, of energy here? So here's some, another kind of continuing with our simplified uh, math to try to better articulate what we're talking about. So according to the internet, right? So that's sort of my qualifier here. Um, but according to the internet, it takes 3.6 uh, calories per hour to generate one watt per hour. All right, so that means there's a scale of effect uh, relative to watts. Now, you know, the reality is calories like don't really exist in food. We've just sort of like arbitrarily tried to, you know, determine how much energy foodstuffs have. And so we've, when we've come to just sort of believe in, in these calories as these objective units of food energy measurements. But, you know, if we think of calorie not as in this, just in the sense of like calories on a box of cereal or whatever, but like, you know, calories as energy, um, 3.6 calories per hour to generate one watt. So this means there's a scale um, of effect relative to watts. You know, does this mean that bigger athletes can't, you know, get good? No, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, that this is necessarily telling us something definitive about the right size of athletes. Uh, I, actually, I, I would suggest that I think bigger athletes would be a lot better um, if people were more aware of this kind of a concept. Um, because I think a lot of our training is organized around really tiny uh, units, really tiny people who experience really small levels of entropic decay. And I think basically the athlete who does five times five minutes at 360 watts, um, or the really small athlete who does five times a mile on the track, I think that athlete is going to be able to execute that workout again sooner than the other athlete. And then that allows that athlete, because they're able to basically practice more, they're able to get better faster. And the other athlete, if they try to go out on that same schedule, they're going to fail, right? Or they need to wait longer to do it, in which case they're not practicing as frequently, in which case they won't improve or they won't improve as much. And then that creates the belief that, well, yeah, these bigger athletes are not good. Yes, I think of more mass you know, massive unit is going to have a harder time, you know, going uphill, you know, when you have these equivalent power, you know, 
equivalent um, systems, right, of climbing. But like, I think that that's taking this sort of one dynamic or characteristic, and it's just ignoring everything else. And you know, I think a part of it is, you know, really then you can simplify what I'm trying to say here and say, how long does it take the athlete to recover? You know, and is that time to recovery thing, right? Is it maybe we shouldn't be calling it recovery though? Like maybe recovery is an oversimplification. Um, and that really what we're looking at is like, what's that entropic decay that you apply a, a workout, a training session engenders a certain level of entropic demand. And then that plays out through a process of entropic decay and you're like you keep putting energy into it and energy into it and then at a certain point in time that decay sort of stops right and we're able to kind of reassemble that system back up to its level of complexity and hopefully to an improved level of complexity and if we combine this sort of like time to recovery and this concept of entropic uh, demand can we actually better understand training load. Now, I think there, and you know, inevitably people want to be able to measure this stuff. And I haven't really thought through to be clear. I haven't thought through how you would be able to maybe try to quantify that. But I think subjectively, you can feel that. I think walking up a flight of stairs in your house, at work, whatever, I think that can be as informative as anything. You know, if you get up to the stairs, top of the stairs, and you're like, wow, I do not like walking up the stairs you're probably still experiencing, you know, that load, you know, and it doesn't matter how many days has has gone by or how many recovery things you've done. Um, I think it also points out, though, in this context, the fallacy of things like foam rollers and ice and whatever, where it's like, you know what, if you walk up the stairs and you don't feel right, then you're probably going to be limited in your ability to go out and, and what you can execute for training. And I think in in this old money, we would say, again, though, these two athletes are equivalent, but I would say that the bigger athlete, you know, could go out and can hang with the smaller athlete, you know, and, and maybe even outperform the smaller athlete in a, in a training session, you know, uh, depending, right? But like they could be, we're, we're trying to keep it just at the level of these athletes are the same, right? You know, one athlete runs 500 watts, one athlete is running or riding at 360 watts, and they're doing you know, you know, repeats of five minutes and they're both going to like, you know, finish at the same, same time. They can side by side it. Right. But that after the fact, right, what happens after the fact, the fact that they did the same workout doesn't mean they're at the same level, but it also does mean they're at the same level because they might have done it and both felt equally good. And there was an athlete I coached uh, when I coached high school and I never really got to the point where we were able to really figure this out because I had stopped coaching. Um, but one of the things that I was interested in at the time is he was, you know, probably 20 to 30 pounds heavier than his, his, you know, the other, um, you know, runners on the team, the other strong runners. And he was a strong runner, but his, like, you know, he would have a good race and have a bad race and he would have a good session and a bad session. And I remember talking to him at one point and saying, you know, I think something we might start to think about is, you know, for you, right, as a stronger you know, athlete, you know, have more mass. And that really what that means is that either the frequency in which we do certain things or the intensity with which we do certain things needs to change. Um, I didn't get to, you know, I had stopped coaching though that same, after that same season. So we never really got to explore that, but that would have been an interesting kind of experiment 
to work through with an athlete. And I, I, I feel that it would have probably made a significant difference. Um, and, and for me, personally, you know, as my weight has changed, recognizing that I can go out and do things that are hard or, you know, or, you know, fast or whatever, but then the time that I need in between is different, right? Or I really can't go as hard or fast as I'm capable of unless I really want, I'm going to compromise my frequency, right? And if frequency, by the way, is also a, in training is a characteristic of consistency. So if we do that, that's probably not going to really be ideal um, to undermine that, right? So another reason why the bigger athlete basically maybe needs to work out easier because if consistency is the most important thing, it doesn't matter that they can execute that session. That was always my experience um, as a runner, you know, as I could go out and like the first workout of the season, I could, you know, run with, you know, X group, but then, you know, we'd come back to the next one and I wasn't ready to do the next one. And, you know, I think some of my peers, you know, even though I feel that being 143 pounds is pretty lean, um, some of my peers were 120 pounds, 125 pounds. Um, they're smaller people. And, you know, so in that scale, right, I've got, okay, another 15 to 20 pounds on these guys, you know, and then my level of, I just wouldn't re- recover in time, right? Or we do the workouts and then I would go to the race and I would be totally dead still, right? And yet they would still be able to go out and run run reasonably well. And I think, you know, looking at that as, as being mentally tough, uh, I don't think it's necessarily, that's necessarily the right or the effective way to think about that. So, I think like the bee, right, the body, right, we're also a, a, you know, physical organism, right? We're experiencing things in terms of the energy demand, right? And that as we're consuming the energy, taking the energy out of the system, the system is sort of breaking down, right? It's losing its ability to perform at that same level, right? And then endurance is the ability to resist that breakdown or, you know, to extend the time until that breakdown uh, becomes overwhelming enough that it reduces performance. So the bigger athlete, right, and the smaller athlete shouldn't be approached in the same way. Or, you know, you shouldn't think about your size as being this thing that indicates what you inherently can or can't do in performance but that you should train based on, you know, what you're experiencing and that what you're doing isn't going to look like what other people do. And if you can't follow the same workouts or do the same workout frequency as other people, that doesn't mean you lack athletic ability. That's not the case at all. You know, so if you go back to that um, sort of, you know, calories per hour, right, the, it, me at 86 kilograms, right, that example, or I'm sort of going to making up this 500 watts VO2 max thing just for numbers to compare um, versus the 62 kilogram athlete. Um, you know, I'm going to be consuming 1800 calories per watt hour to produce my 500 watts. They're going to be producing 1300 calories per watt hour. That's a 500 calorie difference. And then we think about that concept of kinetic energy and bigger systems and the dissipating of that energy through heat, right? And how that, you know, can change your your breaking time, you know, and, and, you know, your need to like balance and shift your center of gravity based on what happens when you grab the brakes. 
So this is equivalent watts per kilogram, 5.1, excuse me, 5.81 watts per kilogram. But it's not, it's literally not equivalent if you try to look at it from the perspective of the energy demand, right? So like if both athletes, you know, are doing the same thing, and I don't know that this would be the solution, but right, this might be something that you might test, right? Well, if this athlete, you know, what if you have the both athletes do 1300 calories per watt hour? Okay. Well, now they're not doing the same workout, right? You know, if they're doing it for time, then like they'll have covered different distances in that amount of time. Or if you're doing it for distance, right? They will um, take different amounts of time to cover that distance. And so, but then this is where it goes totally against, you know, the dogmatic way of thinking, which is like, no, both of these athletes need to be at the same fractional utilization of whatever variable I as a coach or we as a, you know, a training system believe is this this key thing off of which we should be, you know, calculating all training stress and intensity. Uh, maybe not, right? So we're starting to question that. Maybe we're starting to see more and more why that doesn't make sense. You know, so, I mean, essentially that 86 kilogram athlete, you know, now is experiencing that same energy demand. And like that's, you know, more, but when they're not experiencing the same energy demand, right, that 1800 calories per watt hour, that's in a sense more kinetic energy, right? And that means more load by the muscles and other bio uh, physiological infrastructure to generate that force. And that's going to have a greater loading effect. And that's, you know, essentially that's where that greater level of entropic uh, demand is coming from. So basically what we're saying is that the larger athlete then has a greater work capacity to do the same power to weight as a smaller athlete. And this is reflected by the fact that, um, you know, a more muscular athlete on the bike will go faster when the only limiting factor is air resistance, right? If that's the only limiting factor, then, you know, and if that more muscular athlete, right, assuming that you have the muscles in the right places, assuming that you have the aerobic conditioning to, to use those muscles, you're going to just be able to go faster. And I ride regularly with, you know, people who weigh, you know, 40, 50 pounds less than me. And, you know, when we go uphill, I feel, you know, very sad about myself. Um, but then when we go, you know, where it's flat or the gradient is very moderate, I feel great about myself. You know, and I'm up there riding the pace and this is awesome. And, you know, they might, people might be riding on my wheel and might be like, oh my God, can we slow down? And I'm like, well, you're drafting, you're getting all this energy savings. Right. And, um, you know, but then we go uphill again and it's like, well, you know, right. You are, you are only mortal. Um, and obviously I'm sort of being hyperbolic here, but you know, that's, it can be a huge difference. Right. And that's, I think, reflective of this shift, um, in demand, but you know, well, you know, then the fatigue of the different people, right. Even though we all did the same ride, the fatigue is very, is very different. Cause the other thing is, in, you know, practice, like it's very difficult to even get two athletes to do the exact same ones. So, I, I think uh, essentially um, what this is modeling is that it's literally more stress for bigger athletes to train and to do hard efforts. And that means fatigue is going to be greater and you can do the same effort. Um, but it also means that training at X percentage or fractional utilization of Y variable um, is pointless and trying to make general generalizations or, or predict models on this is pointless. And if you're paying hundreds of dollars, a month, 
you know, I mean, the amount of money that some people pay coaches blows my mind. Um, if you're paying money for this stuff, you know, ask yourself, you know, what's the level of nuance and understanding here? Because if this level of understanding isn't there, they don't really know what they're doing. It's just, a, it's just, you know, throwing darts with a blindfold on. It's pinned the tail on the donkey, right? You know, we just sort of, again, I've talked about this on many other episodes. We just accept the fact that only a very small percentage of us should be successful. Instead of saying the reason why very few people are able to be successful is because the process doesn't really um, allow them to be. It's the same thing we see with education, right? We don't really fund or support education that much as a society. And well, we don't need to because we just justify and say, well, this is the this is the outcome. This is all it's going to be anyway. So why and then it would become a waste to spend more money on that. So, you know, it, consistency, right, ultimately has this relationship between intensity and frequency, where the increased intensity in, in intensity is really what can overwhelm the ability to be consistent. And consistency in practice, practicing consistency, building a training system of integrity is what's going to lead to improvement. So the bigger athlete can execute the one session, but then the entropic demand is higher and their subsequent training overload is greater and it's going to require more time to recover. So now they have more fatigue, even though they did the same session, maybe with greater ease. Additionally, the minimum velocity of movement for the bigger athlete is going to require more demand. So it's harder for the bigger athlete to go out and recover, quote unquote, recovery effort. It's harder to do that because when you just start jogging or just start pedaling, you're already producing way more watts, right? Just to initiate movement because of your mass. Okay. So that also is another complicated thing. And that's why I don't like the concept of recovery is recovery suggests that, well, on those days you're, you're, you're recovering and that's not true. You're, you're doing work, you're applying work and you're, all work has some kind of entropic demand. And this is why everything in, you know, the polarized model, the green zone, zone one, that's not the same. Okay. It's just not the same. Um, you know, and the idea of, well, it's below these two breakpoints, like is very insightful, you know, in some sense, but it's also, you know, very limited in another sense. And that there's a lot more differentiation that, that needs to happen. And I know that what, what would generally be the case is people would be dismissive and be like, well, if we're looking at training elite athletes, elite athletes are small, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we don't actually know for a fact that that should be the case. You know, Peter Snell was 180 pounds and he was five foot eleven, And look at the times he was running and imagine how fast he'd be running in today's environment, given the shoes and, and the race surfaces and, you know, Never mind the benefit of being able to be a you know well-paid professional athlete who could really conserve and organize their their lifestyle and their energy around training and racing. You know all those things have a big impact. So, I mean, essentially, what that means too, I think, is that the bigger athlete is going to sort of start ramping up their demand at a lower percentage of their lactate threshold than the smaller athlete. So. The bigger athlete then needs to go slower on recovery. And essentially what maybe this is saying is that the bigger athlete needs to go slower all of the time to then race faster than the smaller athlete. And then this is counterintuitive, right? But that's the problem with using measure, metrics of performance to measure practice. 
Okay. And usually the people who practice the best aren't trying to perform every time they practice. But that's also a cultural myth um, that we that we do this. Um, so like what does this tell us in 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 practice? Well, one practice that I have when I train, um, so one practice when I practice is you know not looking at my watch or my bike computer, which sounds really odd in our data-driven world of sports training. For example, I decided to uh, run around some ath- athletic fields, grass, and some dirt paths um, for about 30 minutes instead of doing 4 by 2 k You know, so you get sick of certain things. You want to do things that are different. And I told myself, well, I'm just going to run 320 watts on the stride pod. And then I still ended up doing 348 watts for the half an hour, right, which is, you know, about 350 watts is what I was doing for the 4 by 2 k you know, and, and I did this um, after taking, uh, you know, the previous day I just went out and jogged. So the previous three days, you know, on the Saturday I had done the crank the kank time trial. And then the next day I, you know, ran 17 miles, sort of, you know, I would say pretty relaxed, but my legs were tired from the time trial. And then the third day I just jogged 30 minutes at 15 minute pace. And then I went out and did this, these, the 30 minutes on the grass at 348 watts, you know, and felt good. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to do that um, if I had just set out to run 355 watts and trying to follow some pre-map progression of intensity. And I don't think I would have been able to do that if I hadn't had that day in there where I just went out and did 15 minute pace. You know, I basically ran two miles you know, at a barely above walking speed or walking intensity. Uh, and I think sometimes that's what's necessary. And, you know, there's sort of, I think, other indicators of this stuff too, like stress response. For whatever reason, my chest, you know, respiratory really starts to sort of, you know, burn if I'm, you know, doing these sessions where I'm not really ready for the intensity. And I think that, you know, your body gives off different kinds of signals. And if you recognize you should listen to those instead of being like, aha, here's this thing that I need to practice ignoring. I think you are getting a lot of key indicators for what uh, you need to be able to do. So, you know, I think, but because of my size, you know, 86 kilograms, I need to, you know, be able, need to be willing to rest um, if I want to be able to access that steady, steady state type LT effort. Because otherwise, if I just go out and just try to run along at what you know feels like a reasonable running effort, because of my size, I end up working like, you know, pretty close to my to that lactate threshold. Like if I just go out and start running comfortably, like all of a sudden I'm just running 310, 315, maybe 320 watts, right? Because again, to move the mass, the minimum energy required is is pretty significant. So. Applying these kinds of concepts, I think, is somewhat maybe tricky, but it's tricky in the sense of tying your shoes. It's tricky because it's new. But if you don't try things that are new, you're going to keep doing the same things. And insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. I hope you found something in here to be insightful or thought-provoking. If you did, please consider 
sharing this podcast with other people who you think would be interested in the ideas or concepts that we explore here. We'll catch you next time.